0: On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the stories of parents learning how to raise a child with a rare disease. Our co-hosts, Sanath Kamar Ramesh, and Brittany Ratke, parents of rare disease kiddos who have very different situations. Sanath's son Raghav has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagadian Type spondial Metaphysial Dysplasia, or SSMD. Brittany's daughter Everly has been diagnosed with Set D5 a mutation that carries with it the potential for a range of complications and even other diagnoses. My name is Kevin Fryer. After 30 years doing research and development at Pfizer, I started Salem Oaks to help patients and caregivers understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D. Our goal on Raising Rare is to help and lift up our listeners by sharing the unfolding stories of these two families. We also feature the stories of other rare disease families, clinicians, researchers, and industry leaders in the rare disease community. If you'd like to follow these parents' stories, please subscribe to Raising Rare on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Raising Rare. Today, you're going to hear from a very fascinating guest. Patrick Gironde is a rare dad who has been at this for a very long time. He's an author, songwriter, singer, and CEO of a pharmaceutical company. And that just scratches the surface. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we get started, Brittany, how's Everly doing?
1: She is doing so good. We've been home from the hospital now for about a week and a half, and She is doing great, happy to be home. And my husband recently wrapped up the wrestling season, so she is excited to be with her dad a little bit more. So really good overall. Sanath, how's Raghav doing?
2: I think Raghav has been doing great. He's uh, still going through all of his challenges with crying. Uh, We are getting closer and closer to finding an answer. Um, and as we get closer, his crying gets more intense. <laughs> so, um, you know, we the, the urgency to find a solution to his problem um, is more than ever right right now.
0: And I'm just going to say, we're recording like rapid fire here. So our listeners may think, boy, Raghav's been doing this for a long time. Um, but actually, it's only been about a week and a half that we keep saying the same thing. So just to let them know. Saw us on the case, and he's going to find a solution. So, Patrick, thank you so much for joining. I've really been looking forward to this, but also dreading how we're possibly going to get everything in um, in the short time that we have. I've been reading your book, and so I feel like I, I know you a little more. Um, I've, I've been listening to your voice through your words. Um, but could you introduce yourself and give us a brief overview of your life resume? I'm
3: Patrick Girondi. And I'm originally from the south side of Chicago, where I was born and raised. Um, I'm a high school dropout, then the United States Air Force, um, but I got all that done before I was 20 years old. Uh, then I worked on the docks for a while. I ended up at the Board of Trade. I was in Playgirl magazine as one of America's most eligible bachelors with Sylvester Stallone and Magic Johnson. I was on a guest on the Oprah show a couple of times, and um, I am a writer, a uh, singer-songwriter as well, won a couple awards. Um, but the most important thing uh, that I am is a father, and um, because of that, I'm also the founder of what I believe is America's number one gene therapy company, San Rocco Therapeutics.
0: So one of the jobs you had, you mentioned, was an author, a writer. How many books have you written, and can you tell us about them?
3: Sure. Um, my first book was uh, probably "The Diamond in the Rough was uh, pushed by Oprah Winfrey, actually back in the early 90s when it was published. Oprah wasn't as big as she is today. And so my agent, Sam Freyfeld, who was also Saul Bellow's agent, um he, uh, he, we didn't ask for any money. We just asked Oprah to push the book. So it's likely the first book that she ever pushed. Um, and then I gave up the idea of publishing books, even though I lost more books that I've written than I have. Um, I met Tony Lyons of Skyhorse, but um, Skyhorse does a lot of the publishing of books that no one else will publish. And I um, He decided to do Flight of the Rondone and then New City. And the other day I signed a contract with him to do three more books that should all be out by the end of the year.
0: Wow, congratulations. So you mentioned the Flight of the Rondone, and and when we spoke earlier, the metaphor of the Rondone is fascinating in the fact that that's your title. Um, I think it's very helpful to the people that listen to this podcast a lot of rare parents so can you give us some examples from your life you know about tell us about the metaphor and give us some examples where um, you were the rondone.
3: Because of my son's health problems we live in Italy Um, and that's because initially he was on experimental medicine which obligated him to be in a hospital and 40 days was 70,000. So We moved to Italy where I opened up a medical center and my son actually was treated from home Um, and all of the money that we would have spent on the experimental medicine, instead we spent on the research center. In the town I live, which is Altamura, it's in Puglia, which is the heel of the boot. A bird comes up from Africa every year arrives in end of March, beginning of April, flies about up to 140 miles an hour. The closest species in the United States would be the swift, but to us, it's the rondone. and the rondone flies around. Like I said, it's incredibly fast and often collides, or maybe the young fall out of the nest onto the streets. But the structure of the bird is that the wings are really much longer than the body, and so the bird, once it lands on the ground, cannot take off again. The birds have to land two to three stories into the air so they can throw themselves in the air and take off. But it happens in our town, and we all know that when a rondone is on the ground, you have to gently take it into your hand, hands and then lift it and throw it as far as you can into the air, hoping that you give it enough altitude that it can begin flapping its wings and save its lives or save its life. And so I kind of argued with my publisher, Skyhorse, about the, the name of the book because no one knows what Rondonia even is. But in my lifetime, many times when I was down and out, people had picked me up and threw me back into the air so that I could continue flying. And so that's what the Rondoni is. And that's what the metaphor stands for.
0: I think it's great. Um, it really does kind of capture uh, many people's lives that we, that we speak to here.
2: I think it's very similar to the paths that I've taken and definitely Brittany has taken to. I'm sure you've experienced this quite a bit where <clears throat> nothing seems to make sense. Nothing seems to work. And, uh, and metaphorically, we're all on the ground, um, but someone helps us get off the ground. I, I I love that metaphor, by the way. I I think Kevin told me about Rondone uh, before this conversation, and and I felt like it's so appropriate how um, that metaphor fits all our lives, um, because you know, I, I, I mean, evolution decided to give this bird extra long wingspan for a reason. Maybe it's for the speed of flight. But then it has a problem, right? And uh, Evolution decided to give us uh, kids with sick diseases, uh, sick kids with diseases, because that's what it decided. Uh, But we do need help, like the Rondon, to continue to keep flying and doing things that are different from what others could do.
1: I loved that too, because in some ways that's what the purpose of this podcast is for, right? Like we're here to help others along the way, and that's how I really related to it as well. And then I also wanted to know, Patrick, can you tell us more about your son and what his rare disease story was like for your family?
3: Sure. So Rocco um, is my oldest of three boys, and he was uh, at two and a half years old, lethargic, and very pale, we took him to the hospital and they said that he needed to immediately transfuse and that he would have to continue to transfuse every two or three weeks to live. Now in 1992, it was a very dangerous thing to transfuse anyone because they still had not been testing for AIDS and hepatitis C. So it was basically Russian roulette. And there's so many stories about people who have lost their lives in that period, even if they were in a car crash and they had to do a transfusion. Um, So I, I didn't want to transfuse him. And I searched for another strategy and found it in a doctor called Susan Perrine, who was experimenting with arginine butyrate. So Rocco's whole problem is, similar to that of sickle cell disease problem. They're diseases because they're a defect on the beta-globin gene. The beta-globin gene is the adult hemoglobin gene. So while we're in our mother's wombs, up until a year and a half or two years of age, we have the fetal hemoglobin gene. And then it slowly turns off, and we get the adult hemoglobin gene, which is called the beta-globin. The fetal hemoglobin is the... Uh, alpha globin, I believe. So anyway, in the, to make a long story short, when he could not make his own hemoglobin, which is the oxygen carrier in the blood, we put him on arginine butyrate, which was an IV drug. He started out at the University of uh, San Francisco and Children's Hospital of Oakland Research Institute. We were living in the hospital for about, We were there for about three months' time. It stimulated his fetal hemoglobin gene, turned it back on. And for five years, my son maintained an average hemoglobin of about 10, which allowed him to avoid 100, 100, at least 100 blood transfusions.
2: That's incredible. That's drug repurposing and and, and a classic uh, success story of repurposing that you know, we are all trying to get to. I've repurposed several drugs for my son. Uh, some of them have been successful, some of them have not been, but the process of discovering that drug to repurpose has always been a challenge. So I, I'm curious to learn more about how you found this doctor and, and, and if you even remember how the how they had found that drug uh,
3: that they wanted to repurpose. All right, so I didn't graduate from high school, didn't never read much of anything when my son was diagnosed, I started reading everything. And, um, the biggest, you know, um, aid is pubmed.org, which is the, uh, United States library, um, of medical articles. And so you're able to go into pubmed.org and put in your particular query and articles just pop up and they're in chronological order. And, uh, that helped me incredibly. So I was able to find Dr. Susan Perrine, who today is at Boston University. And like I said, it, it was amazing to realize that when I get into talking like a normal person from the South side of Chicago, from my neighborhood, some people wonder, you know, if I even can speak English well, of course on the podcast, I'm doing my best. Um, but I didn't read anything and then pubmed.org saved my life and meeting Susan Perrine saved my son, a hundred blood transfusions. So for any parent going through this, my advice is all, and I've now I've dealt with hundreds of them, literally, um, the best advice I have, particularly in the healthcare in the United States, which has gone from being a service to an industry. Um, And so that you'll very often have doctors giving you the wrong advice, and not because they want to, of course. I I at least most of the time I believe they don't want to, but because they're obligated by some crazy protocol. Um, And it happens more and more as the industry takes a hold of healthcare. Um, So every parent like you, Sanath, you have an intelligence that's incredible. That you know our lifetime is barely scratched, and you have imagination. And more and more parents of children with problems need to use their imagination and think. And believe me, I thought for hours and hours and hours, because the obvious solutions just weren't the solutions. And I'm sure it's the same for you.
2: That's very fascinating. I I think uh, when I got started in this journey, uh, like you, I was reading a lot on PubMed, um, and I... uh, Credited my ability to understand science a little bit to my brief stint in in a bioinformatics lab. Uh, And then I saw other parents kind of doing the same. And and now I'm convinced that science isn't as actually hard as as everybody makes out it to be, Um, especially when you have the drive to solve and save our kids, I think science just becomes accessible, right? And and now I'm convinced that people are just not working hard enough to understand science um, and science is inherently understandable. Uh, your, your story is just reinforcing my uh, f- change of fundamental belief, I guess, uh, in, in that if people have enough drive, science is just available for them.
3: Yeah, I mean... Um, I would agree 100%. And I'm probably the luckiest guy in a certain sense to do what I do because when I was a kid, I was a shoeshine. And when you're a shoe shoeshine, you have to become streetwise because you have to remember the bars you get thrown out of. You have to remember the guys that gave you a crack instead of a quarter. You have to remember the bartenders that might humiliate you, the bartenders that give you a bag of potato chips whenever you go in there. Um, you have to watch the street to see there's no kids out. might mean the bullies are out there waiting for you to walk by with your box and grab your money. But there's a whole lot of things that enable a young person, young man, um, to be able to use his mind. You're forced, in a certain sense, survival forces you to use your mind. And today, in a lot of ways, um, maybe because of the computer, Maybe because we're no longer street people. You know, a lot of children today are just born and raised in their homes on their computers Um, or in organized sports. But when I was a kid, there was really nothing organized. There certainly was no organized sports. So you lived on the street. And for that reason, I think I'm better apt. I'm, I'm more appropriately trained to do what it is that I do which the old days we would say thinking outside of the box. And today, every parent, particularly when their child is challenged, and it could be obesity, but whatever it is, the parent more so today needs to use their imagination, use their intelligence, use their discipline. So Sanath, I actually will pray and send my best, warmest hopes to you because you're a little younger than I am. And when I was figuring out in the 90s what would save my child, medicine in the United States was far less detrimental than it tends to be today. So your job, in my opinion, is much more challenging than mine was.
2: I, I, and certainly, I don't have the the street smartness that, that you have. And I can say this with confidence because um, I've, I've particularly thought about this a lot. Um, and up until a few years ago, I thought the whole purpose of my life was to go to a job, earn a living, and die. Um, and after my son was born, that changed, right? And now the world has opened up in in many ways than than I could imagine, and that has given me at least the appreciation if not the understanding that there are other things other ways of, of 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 leading life than you know eight nine to five job and and going to sleep and then doing the same thing again the next day yeah i mean would you give your life for your sons no maybe maybe not maybe not no because i i think um i i don't I've actually thought about that question, particularly, especially after my son's diagnosis. And I I realized I don't have the right to take my life and I don't have the right to decide what has to be done with another person's life. So uh, from that standpoint, I I don't think I have the right to make that
3: call. But would you dedicate, would you sacrifice every meaningful thing in your life to help your son? 100%. Every, right. every minute, every, every, every breath. So the question uh, too vaguely. Um, and so that's what you have to remember every minute. Your pledge as a father is to give everything that you possibly have. And you have to remember that not only when you're with yourself, but with when you're with the other doctors and when you are with scientists or whoever it might be or bankers. Sometimes, you know, I have to deal with bankers a lot. And, uh, you know, remember, Sonath, the doctor you're standing in front of is no brighter than you are. He's no better than you are. Yeah. He might have studied some books, but today we got Google. Google's a lot smarter than your doctor is. And I don't know how many times I had to sit in front of doctors and listen to them. Sometimes I knew they were just full of shit, basically. Um, you know, because of course, if they don't stay on their game, um, eventually as quickly as technology moves forward, they're full of sooner or later. Um, and you must remember that the love for your child, this dedication to do everything that you can for him is much more powerful and much more intelligent than any doctor is.
0: So you told us about arginine butyrate. Is Rocco still on arginine butyrate and where where is that taking you?
3: Sure. Arginine butyrate is given intravenously, which was one of the reasons we had to move to Italy because to do an IV drug, at least back then, you needed to be hospitalized. So I didn't want my son raised in a hospital and I knew he needed to do arginine butyrate. So we moved to Italy where that wasn't the case. Um, He stayed on it for about um, five to six years, and it was IV. He was hooked up to a pump in Abbott 5000 from anywhere from 10 to 20 hours a day. It wasn't an easy way to live. So after the blood was routinely checked for AIDS and hepatitis C, he began transfusing like all of the other, trans, like all of the other uh, thalassemic patients and many of the sickle cell disease patients have to transfuse to live. So he transfuses blood today, even though we have the, he should have been cured three or four years ago actually with gene therapy, um, which is a whole other history and story. But so the argin butyrate, I don't know anybody that uses it any longer, and that's mostly because it's very difficult to um, administer.
0: So how did you get into gene therapy?
3: So in 2000, I read Nature magazine article about a French doctor who was at Memorial Sloan-Kettering named Michel Settelin, and he saved um, six generations of thalassemic mice using gene therapy. I met him in Rome in 2000. Um, he explained to me exactly what he was doing, and as soon as he explained it, I realized this was going to save my son. And um, I began funding him. I began asking my friends to fund him. And in 2005, we signed the worldwide licensing to take over his technology. In 2010, San Rocco Therapeutics, which again I believe is the most important gene therapy in the United States for a lot of reasons, but we delivered the first batch, commercial batch, because up until then, everybody had been making one batch for one patient, one batch for one patient. A million dollars it was cost cost back then. But our company, which is head, lead, led by Professor Christopher Ballas, and he's still with our company, you know, almost 20 years later, um, he devised... Filter a filtration mechanism and a way to filter, etc. And Michelle Settlin, Isabel Riviere, etc. We worked very hard, many researchers, and we were able to make to produce enough medicine for 10 up to 10 patients for about 1.3 million or 130,000 per patient. So it was the first time a company came up with a commercial batch in 2010. Of course. Nobody realized what the company could have been worth and what this product was going to be worth. And it was sabotaged by Bluebird Bio, Third Rock Ventures. We realized that in court documents, but not until 20 years later, or 10 years later, of course. But my, my company had invented this salvation for thalassemia and sickle cell disease patients. And today, Bluebird Bio is approved to treat patients at $2.8 million per patient, a price that no one will ever pay. I don't care what anybody says. And in fact, they haven't treated any patients. But they're using our product. We're now suing them for patent infringement. I doubt that as a company they're ever going to make it. I would like them eventually to be criminally prosecuted for what has happened. Um, and my company, uh, it costs me, Pat Rondi, my street sense, kind of a guy way to do this. I can make the medicine. It's obviously personalized medicine. You know, everybody has a different vector because I'm taking, we're taking their stem cells from them and then modifying them and giving them back the beta globin gene, billions of copies. I can get this done for under $300,000 a patient. Now, we have always said that we would charge 700,000 per patient. And then the more patients we could move down, the more um, that we could uh, make the product more efficient, move down. I've been to India many times. India actually has the world's largest thalassemic population. I've been there many times. Um, patients and doctors and researchers. Uh, But we can sell the product, and we believe it's safer because we use the wild-type beta-globin gene where they use a mutant gene. And that's why I said our company is the most important American company, at least, uh, for gene therapy because we'll be offering a better product at $2.1 million cheaper per patient than the only approved gene therapy for beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease at the moment.
2: That's fascinating. I'm very interested in, I I, I think a couple of lines of of, of directions that we can go from here, but I'm very interested in how you think you can offer it for cheaper. So I, I, I know that probably there is a lot of inflation of costs going on at Big Pharma or or or, or like more established companies, right? But then my investigations into the actual act of manufacturing gene therapy, uh, and again, I I was talking about in vivo, so I don't know about the ex vivo gene therapy that you're talking about, but my investigations um, made me believe that the cost, even the cost price of less than a million dollars of manufacturing is going to be hard. So I'm curious to understand how or what allows you to be cheaper.
3: Like I said, in 2010, we were able to manufacture enough of the therapy for 1.3 million at City of Hope. City of Hope put it together, but our researchers and Michelle Settelin at Memorial Sloan Kettering, basically, he's the guy, by the way, he's the big guy, um, were able to make this happen. So filtration technology of more efficient way to process it. It's just like Coca-Cola, I think, was founded around 1890. But the Coca-Cola made today is, you know, much easier to make, much more pure, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same kind of thing. So we can do everything for under $300,000 per patient. Well, when you're paying all of the CEOs and all of the other C's, because if you're the CEO's compensation package is $10 million, well, then the other C's around them compensation is $5 million. Before you know it, basically what's going on is that the American public are being robbed by the American executives. It doesn't take cost that much money to run a company. My, pro, my, my uh, salary is $150,000 a year, and I never took one until 2021. Um, and at the end of the year, I write checks back to the company for what I believe that I shouldn't have charged on my credit card. It wasn't directly related to research. So that's the biggest answer. And when you go and you have the funds, because we need funds, so the fund developers are in cahoots with the CEOs and the CFOs and the CMOs and all of these Cs, they're robbing the American public. They're robbing, and they're killing patients, by the way, with their greed. They try to tell you that you need a billion dollars to get a product to market. You can make gene therapy, under three hundred thousand per patient, and I believe within ten years we'll be able to do it under a hundred thousand per patient. And I'm looking forward to offering our product in India, and in Tanzania, which I've traveled to many times. I, I was always wondering if you know if you could manufacture cheaper um,
2: and potentially faster. I guess uh, that is a competitive advantage in the market, right? Like th- typically, if you have a product that is too expensive and another competition comes in that is cheaper and maybe better, uh, then the standard economic model, say, is the market forces would push you down uh, and, and in, into the cheaper and more effective product. So I was always wondering what stops companies or products like yours from either moving fast and offering it to patients, or if you cannot do it yourself, make the technology freely available or at least available at a low cost, the technology itself to someone that has the means and the abilities to actually capitalize on the efficiencies that you have developed. Uh, So I wonder if you have some perspectives on while the rest of the ecosystem is slow and, and expensive, can you race farther ahead than them just simply using your price and efficiency as a competitive model?
3: I was lucky. So I had some money, right? I told you I was Oprah Winfrey show, rags of riches, all this crap. So I, I, you know, and like you, I'd give everything, you know. So I had some money. And then I was joined by John Walton, Walmart. So the Walton family, John and Christy, his wife, John's no longer with us, unfortunately. Great guy, by the way. Um, they had a problem with their son and um, they lived in fear that the disease would come back and argin and butyrate had an application in their son's disease. So the Waltons came in and they invested 20 million uh, back in like 1995 to 2004. We were partners. And then in 2004, right before John died, I think, I think he died in four or five, he handed the whole company with all the patents to me, everything. And I was able then to use that as my platform, as my foundation to go raise other funding. So you're right. Um, You do need money. Um, And you need integrity, people with integrity. And that's the problem that I kind of think, sometimes I say it was after Gecko said in the movie, greed is good, that we kind of almost started believing that. So today you have a shortage of integrity and you have a, a, a real excess of greed. But you need good managers, managers with integrity um, and honesty. So I was lucky that I had the seed money and then my friends put in money and the Walton family put in money. And then I was very fortunate to find honest researchers and doctors. And in the end, I was blessed to have the street sense to be able to understand the difference between the honest researcher and the dishonest researcher, the honest doctor, the dishonest doctor. Um, And very often you need what the dishonest doctor has to give you and you have to go, you know, go for it. But um, I was just blessed and I really do believe that as stupid as I am, and I'm pretty stupid. I mean, I'm, you know, there's nothing um, exceptional about me. And you could go back to any of my grammar school and, high school teachers and ask them and they could tell you that I wasn't the sharpest knife and am not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, I'm certain that almost any parent, you know, unless they're have special needs themselves, um, could do better than I did. If, if they realize that, and if they'll go down deep, as deep as they can go, we could do better than I did. You could do better than I did. Um, and that's the biggest problem today is that none of us think any longer. You know, we don't take that hour out and really think deeply because we've got Google and then we've got the television set and then we've got a book and all of that. But I just think that the average parent has the intelligence and the imagination to make a difference in the, their child's lives, no matter no matter what.
1: I'm so fascinated by all the work that you've done so far, but when you were talking about some of the relationships and the mentors and the researchers that you were able to get on your team, can you talk to what that looked like and how you sought out each of those individuals? Because we're so early on in our daughter's journey, um, looking for research, looking for the funding, that we're kind of in that process where we need people to back us up and support us. Can you just talk about how you went about that and how you found those people in your life and your journey?
3: I was driven to arginine butyrate by the need to not transfuse my son. And that pushed me to just study and read and talk. And I was able to discover Susan Perrine and arginine butyrate. After that, I needed funding. And like I said, I was lucky I had money and that was a seed money, but it wasn't enough. I needed further money and to get money, you need to have a good common sense business idea, business plan. I hate using business plan. That's what everybody uses. It's overused, but it, you have to, what, what you're doing has to make good common sense to someone else. And, Unfortunately, for example, thing that I've discovered, when you go to some of these larger research institutes, any of them, by the way, you'll discover that they charge overhead. So if you have Dr. Jones and Dr. Jones is at Georgetown and you want to write a check to Dr. Jones because he is doing research for you and you give him a check for $10,000, you'll unfortunately figure out eventually that Georgetown is taking anywhere from 70 to 80% of Dr. Jones's money and they're putting it to overhead. So you wrote a check for 10,000 and Dr. Jones got two to 3,000. Well, I figured that out real quick. So I stopped writing checks to Dr. Jones and I said, Dr. Jones, what is it that we need here? And he would say, well, It would be great if we could get this special um, machine that sells for $40,000 that we don't have in our laboratory. Oh, is that right. Okay. So I figured out a way to buy the machine and then borrow it to the laboratory. Here, Dr. Jones, on the back of it, it says owned by the Girondi family. But, you know, you don't worry about it. You just use it whenever you want. Or Dr. Jones might say, well, you know, what we really need is we need plasmids. And uh, the best place to get them probably would be Eldeveron. Um So these are the plasmids we need. Oh, fascinating. I would get a hold of Aldevaran myself and I'd have them shipped. Now, I know the big research People don't want you to know this. And in a sense, I guess it's hurting them. Um, That's how I got away without paying the 70%, 70 to 80% tax. And one thing I would like to tell you, my friends, that there's a big difference between a not-for-profit and a non-profit. So when you take... Nonprofits, nonprofits, as many of our research institutes are, you'll discover that that nonprofit CEO is making five, six, seven million dollars a year. So I look at it that that 70 to 80% tax isn't fair because it's going to cushion the envelopes that are going to all of these C's at the top of the nonprofits. Now, not-for-profits is different because they're not allowed to make profits. But today, if you look at a lot of the big nonprofits in the health industry, you'll find that they're making hundreds of millions of dollars in profit a year. And that their executives' uh, compensation is very often into the millions and sometimes tens of millions of dollars. So that's the problem with why research costs so much. And using our imagination, we can figure out ways to, do, to get around that. And one of the ways is by directly working with the investigator or the research themselves so that you understand that 100 cents of your dollar gets to him.
0: I think that the creativity you show to work in the system is is fantastic and i think that that's very inspiring to people to say wait there there might be a different way you know i don't have to follow and so i just think it's it's fantastic to hear that and and hear how you've you've gone about that but do you have any things any last things you'd like to to leave with our listeners because we're just about out of time here
3: you know some people call, say God is nature. Some say God is Allah. Some guys say God is Jesus Christ. And boy, I've had to deal with all sorts of patients and all sorts of religion. Um, but in the end, whether it's nature or it's God, we're all sewed together by that common, common thread of love. We are all connected by love and caring about our family and our friends. And that If you use your intelligence and seek out that imagination that you have in you, you're going to be able to come up with resolution often and solutions for things that you never thought that you could. Now, I put together my music and my books. Um, Actually, the guy that did Cutthroat City, Paul Kuskeri, is now writing the screenplay for Flight of the Rondone. And he claims it will become a film. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. You never know. Um, But I think that people like you and me, Sanith, and Brittany, and Kevin, we've got to bundle together, you know, and we're going to help a lot of people. Again, we're all in this together. And that would be, you know, my last words and my advice to people who find themselves in the situation that we're in. So inspiring!
2: Thank you for spending your time with us. I've already purchased the book. I cannot wait to read.
3: Thank you for honoring me of of, of that. And you'll know that anything that I get, all you know, it just goes to research. I drive a nineteen ninety six Fiat in in Italy. In the United States, I drive a two thousand and twelve Sebring. Of course, both are convertibles because I have to have a convertible. It's like one of my idiosyncrasies, you know. Um, so, no, I thank you. And, you know, kind of like you, initially they'll ignore you, right? I mean, that's what happened with me. And Big Farm in a lot of ways, still ignores me. And as long as nobody listens to you, and as long as, you know, Raising Rare Prod Podcast doesn't become a podcast with millions and millions of followers, they don't really care because nobody's listening. But after that, and slowly but surely, your podcast is gaining ground and I'm honored to be on it, they're gonna start listening. And then it's us arm in arm with people like us. And let's just forget about the big money people and forget about big pharma and big 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 uh, NBC, ABC, and all of them who are owned anyway in the, and by their advertisers. And you know, it's us out there. And slowly but you, but surely, Brittany, Santa, and Kevin, we will make an impact.
0: Well, thank you very much. Um, And our listeners, please don't forget to look for The Flight of the Rondone and the new book, New City. Thank you again, Patrick. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4.org on the Raising Rare podcast page or at curegpx4.org The Set D5 community is currently getting organized We will let you know where you can donate soon You can continue to follow Raghav and Everly stories next time on Raising Rare